1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. We're delighted to have Anat Wilf and Adi Schwartz on the show today to talk about their bold and insightful new book, The War of Return. Adi Schwartz, Anat Wilf, welcome to the podcast. Thank you.
2: Thank you for having us.
1: Before we turn to the book, Tell us a little bit about your political and professional backgrounds. Einat, you served in the Israeli Knesset as a member of the Labor Party. How did you go from there to your current views on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict?
3: Uh, So uh, I grew up in uh, Jerusalem, in Beit HaKerem, and my uh, social and political environment was very much that of the Israeli left, of the Israeli Labor Party. And as a young adult, I very much uh, supported and adopted uh, those political views, which at the time, we're talking uh, kind of the end of the 80s, the early 90s, uh, became very much associated with a single idea, the idea that uh, Israel has a path to peace based on land for peace. And uh, I experienced the 1990s really as a decade almost of euphoria. Uh, There was um, a general global euphoria with the end of the Soviet Union and the fall of the Berlin Wall and so many major developments. Uh, And certainly I thought throughout the 1990s, I supported Oslo. I was very excited by the fact that Israel was signing the peace agreement with Jordan and very much supported um, Ehud Barak when he went 20 years ago to Camp David to sign a final peace agreement with the Palestinians. I think like many Israelis of the peace camp at the time. I believed that this was it. Uh, Peace was at hand. Uh, This was the global atmosphere. Uh, Israel is doing what it takes to make peace, which is handed over land. We negotiated with Syria over the Golan Heights, and uh, we were negotiating with the Palestinians over the future of the West Bank and Gaza. And When Ehud Barak put on the table the proposal for a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza, no settlements, capital in East Jerusalem, many people forget how bold it was at the time. Uh, I fully supported it, and I very much expected uh, the Palestinians to say yes. Uh, This is what I I grew up to believe, that the day that Israel... We'll give the Palestinians a proposal for a state in the West Bank and Gaza with the capital of East Jerusalem. They'll take it, take it with both hands. And when Arafat walks away and follows this up with this just murderous, bloody campaign of uh, blowing up entire families in our streets, um, I began to ask, with like many Israelis of the peace camp, what's going on? What do the Palestinians want? And when it repeated again with Abu Mazen, with Ulmert, uh, and Netanyahu, when they keep walking away from opportunities to have their own state. I I asked a simple question, what do they want? Because clearly it's not a state. It's not an end to the occupation. It's not the end of settlements. They could have had all of that several times over. And um, as I met with Palestinians and began to research the issue, I realized that it was hiding in plain sight. They were telling us all along what they wanted. We just didn't listen or when we did listen, we didn't take it seriously. They told us, uh, like they say in all their demonstrations, from the river to the sea. They want this thing called the right of return, which uh, we'll talk about. But I realized that effectively at no point throughout all these decades of negotiations, when I was being so euphoric and hopeful, they never had a vision for peace where the state of Israel is allowed to remain as the sovereign state of the Jewish people in any borders whatsoever. And this led me ultimately to write the book and to speak on this issue.
1: Adi, you're a researcher by occupation, I understand. Uh, what, What led to your interest in what has become your area of expertise, that is, refugees, both Palestinian and Jewish refugees, who were expelled from Arab countries?
2: So my career started out uh, in journalism. I worked uh, uh, with Haaretz newspaper for about 10 years, from 1999 to 2009. And while not uh, directly involved in any of the discussions or the negotiations that Inat mentioned, uh, I was also under the impression uh, that the conflict is uh, is uh, national or between two national groups uh, that wanted the same piece of land, and therefore it was natural, or at least uh, a reasonable way to solve it, would be through uh, partitioning the land or uh, making two country, two states, one Jewish and one Arab. And this is the reason why I also supported and thought reasonable both Barack's proposal, the Clinton parameters, and uh, the idea of a land for peace. This is what we were told for many years, uh, beginning in the 80s or even before, that this would be the solution uh, of the conflict. And as Einat mentioned, uh, when Eald Barak tried it, it failed. Later on, when uh, Ulmer tried it, it failed. And all through this decade of the, actually the first decade of the 21st century, we saw that this, this promise of land for peace simply doesn't work. And I think that when things don't work more than once, uh, that's already not a coincidence. You have to ask yourself whether your assumptions, your basic assumptions, were correct. And I also started researching, this is, this is when I started researching. Um, deeper aspects of the of the conflict trying to understand what the palestinians actually want and um, to your question about the jewish refugees to see the atmosphere and the background the historical background of relationship between jews and muslims we can uh, go into that perhaps later but i think that my conclusion is that while we thought that this is a conflict between two groups with the rights in the land, certain rights in the land, and then you kind of split the land somehow and find a border. I think that for the Palestinians, it's a very different vision. For the Palestinians, there's one group themselves, the Palestinians, who have all the rights. They're 100% right. This is their country. They see it as exclusively only an Arab and Muslim country. And the Jews have no rights here. The Jews are foreign, colonial, imperialist. They came here uh, only to kick out the Arabs, but they don't have their own connection to the land. And therefore, this is the, the, the vision of justice for the Arabs. They see it as Algerians fighting French occupation and not as two groups fighting with their own rights and merits over the land. And I think that when I understood this, this was a process of researching, reading, understanding, I understood that and saw how uh, uh, encapsulated this vision is in the idea of the return of the refugees. So this, I think, symbolizes, this is not just another aspect of the conflict. It's not a technical issue that can be solved, you know, put them here, put them there. No, it goes deeper, it touches Uh, upon the basic view of how the Palestinians view themselves, how they see justice, how they see the state of Israel. And until we touch this issue, we will never be able, first, to understand the conflict, and second, to see if we can solve it.
1: Okay, that's very helpful. Let's start again at the beginning. So in the light of what you both said, what does the title, The War of Return, mean? Whoever wants to take that,
2: uh, so I, I, I can I can uh, I can start, and not if you wants uh, if you want you can of course add. So uh, why is it a war of return? I think that yeah. by now um, seventy two years after the after the war of independence the nineteen forty eight war, the first Arab Israeli war, whatever you want to call it. Um, there has been an open issue of Palestinian refugees. And along the years, the Palestinians have managed to create an image uh, of a demand that uh, the refugees and their descendants, which by now number between five and nine million people, they demand that they return or enter Israel, because by now it's not a return, most of them uh, are not among the living. We're talking about the descendants who have never been to Israel, so it's not a return. But the Palestinians have managed to create an image of either humanitarian issue, you know, this is just uh, a bunch of people who want to go back to their homes. What could be more natural than that? Or they managed to create uh, a legal aspect of the matter that this is their right. This is uh, somehow uh, a legal right enshrined in international law. No, it is not. We detail in the book that this is not a legal right. The Palestinians and their descendants do not possess a right to enter, to return, whatever you want to call it, to resettle in the state of Israel. But more importantly, what we're trying to say, and this is the answer to your question, this is the the name of the book, The War of Return, This return is actually a synonym to the war that is still ongoing in the minds of the Palestinians towards the state of Israel. So in their view, perhaps the first battle, or there were previous ones, we can talk about them, they failed. They didn't manage in 1948 um, to undo the state of Israel or to win over it in a battle. But the war... Is still not over. For them, the war is still going on until they will achieve the final aim or the just solution of undoing the state of Israel. In their view, a Jewish state in the sense that Jews are sovereign in a certain piece of land in the Middle East, in this area, is simply an unjust cause, and the war will continue until this injustice is being uh, remedied in some way the only way, of course, is to undo the state. So it's not a coincidence. It's not a humanitarian matter. It's not a legal matter. It's a political aim to undo the state of Israel through a massive return, a massive collective return of millions, which will, of course, make Israel into an Arab state instead of a Jewish state. So this is the reason for the name of the book.
1: Uh, And you mentioned the political and the humanitarian aspects of this phenomenon, uh, there's also an historical uh, aspect. Had, had the Arab states not attacked the brand new uh, UN-approved state of Israel back in 1948, would there have been any Palestinian refugees today?
3: So, uh, this is uh, something that uh, we often amazingly have to remind that the idea of refugees, the existence of Palestinian refugees, was absolutely not necessary and certainly not inevitable. Um, if the Palestinians had said yes, to the UN plan to partition the state between a Jewish and an Arab state, that was the vision, there would have been no displacement at all. There is a tendency today to kind of retroactively erase that and present Zionism as this inexorable movement of displacement of Palestinians, meaning a movement that could not have achieved its aims, but by displacing the existing population. And the amazing thing is how untrue this is. To begin with, of course, how sparse the population is, there was room for everyone. Uh, One of my favorite maps to show is the map of the existence of malaria at the beginning of the 20th century, and then compare it to the UN partition map. And what you see in the map, they're almost one-to-one, is that the only population that Zionism displaced was mosquitoes. Uh, so really, up until partition, uh, Zionism is the movement of building, of construction. There is no need for displacement at all. It is only because the Arabs in the land, and later the Arab states that came to their assistance, when they choose to reject partition and to wage war uh, against the establishment of a Jewish state in any borders, only then, when they lose their effort, do they become refugees. And of course, Jews in the land become refugees from the areas that become the West Bank and Gaza. And the thing is that we try to understand why is it that the refugees from this particular war of partition and decolonization still maintain themselves into the fifth generation today as refugees, whereas you don't see it in any other war from the same period 40s 50s you don't have refugees today or people saying they're refugees and certainly not people with an agency in with the letters u.n in its name saying they're refugees into the fifth generation and this goes back exactly to what adi said in the title of our book the reason is that the palestinians uniquely Insisted and then were indulged by the West in their demand that the war not be over, because if they had settled and moved on, like all other refugees from the era, the war would have been over. We would have had an India-Pakistan situation. Uh, so this is uh, this is really the thing that needs to be reminded. Uh, There was no reason for there to be Arab refugees or Palestinian refugees. All they had to do was say yes to partition and not wage war against Israel. Once they lost, uh, they had no right to demand an undo. I mean, the idea of return is basically to say, oopsie, sorry, we tried to prevent you from existing. We failed. Uh, We want a redo. You don't get a redo, uh, but this is what the demand to return is. Other refugees in the world, of course, were not indulged in this worldview, and this is the Palestinian way of keeping the war of 1948 over until open until they finally get the outcome which they try to achieve the first time, which is no state of Israel.
1: Well, that's a very important point. The, the second half of the 20th century saw many, many millions of refugees, both throughout Europe after World War II, India-Pakistan, as you mentioned, the Korean War, Vietnam, Cambodia. uh, The the magnitude of the refugee problem was enormous. And yet, they're all integrated either into their new countries or somewhere uh, and don't consider themselves or their children and grandchildren refugees. So a un another uniqueness about the Palestinians that you write about, which is just uh, mind-blowing if you're not accustomed to this uh, information, is that uh, despite the fact that even today in the 21st century, there are also millions of refugees in Syria and elsewhere um, and in Europe, Only the Palestinians have a UN agency that's just for them, UNRWA, U-N-R-W-A. Tell us about how that can happen.
2: So um, the answer, as uh, uh, Inat said, we asked ourselves, how is it that the Palestinians are the only group who remained as refugees? And the answer is that the Palestinians were in fact the only group um, that was indulged by the international community, mainly the West, because these were the funders and the establishers of exactly that same agency. Because the, the wish of refugees or former refugees to return to their homes or to return to their uh, houses and the land is, is, um, is normal, is universal. Many people wanted to return. Germans, 12 million Germans were uh, uh, became refugees after World War II, and they all wanted to return as well to Czechoslovakia, to Poland, etc. Uh, people in India and Pakistan wanted to return home. So the mere uh, desire to go back home is natural and is not unique to the Palestinians. What is unique is the way the international community treated them. Because from day one, or perhaps a little bit later, but... Um, From the end of the 50s, the world, the international community, chose to indulge the Palestinians, something they didn't do, either with the Germans or the Indians and the Pakistanis, etc., etc. No one else in the world has received the message that it, it is okay to continue to be refugee for the fourth or the fifth generation 70 years after the war. And the question is why? Why did the West treat the Palestinians differently than all other groups of people? And the answer is politics. The answer is geostrategic interest. Uh, we're talking about uh, the height of the Mid- the, the Cold War, a uh, very strong uh, uh, war or conflict between the Western world, the United States, and the Soviet Union, the importance of the Middle East as provider of oil, uh, we're talking about the 50s when rebuilding Western Europe was a central and major economic, strategic, military uh, interest of the United States. And with all due respect to the Arab-Israeli conflict, the Americans told to themselves, and by the way, under very heavy pressure from the Arab states, and they said, OK, with all due respect, we have much bigger interests. We have the Berlin Wall. We have the China, communist China war in Vietnam, with all due respect, we can continue and finance UNRWA. That would be a few hundred million dollars per year. But it is more important for us to give the Arab world the impression that we're with them, that we're not pro-Jewish, that we're not pro-Israeli. So the whole idea, beginning in the end of the 50s, of maintaining UNRWA, even though, and we have it on record, everybody knew, that UNRWA is not doing anything good. They knew that this is some kind of a a charade, uh, a bribe, actually a bribe to the Arab world, because they knew that if they stopped financing UNRWA, the Arab countries, uh, at least this is what they threatened, uh, to be anti-Western, to stop uh, ships going in the Suez Canal, uh, to raise the price of oil, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. all kinds of economic sanctions that the United States and Western Europe simply did not want, so they paid this uh, this uh, bribe each year. Continued uh, the financing of UNRWA, even though they knew it is doing nothing good, uh, not settling any Palestinian refugee whatsoever, and instead instilling in their minds of the Palestinians that they actually do have this right to return and uh, maintaining and sustaining this ethos that the creation of the state of Israel was an injustice uh and and the whole structure that we just mentioned so this is this is the uniqueness of the palestinian uh, refugee problem the way the world has chose to indulge their uh, their dream to undo the state of israel
1: Well, that brings up a very important point when you go back in in history and track the development of the situation and of UNRWA. Because back in the 1950s and up through, I would guess, 70s or 80s, uh, the conflict was considered to be the Arab-Israeli conflict when it was clear that it was the Arab states, the huge numbers, power and oil uh, strengths of the Arab states against little Israel. And uh, it seems that, not that the Arab states have all made peace with Israel, but the the perception, the public perception and the labeling of the conflict, the, the camera lens was narrowed so that it was just uh, Palestinian-Israeli. And that, of course, changed the perception of the power balance and many other things. Uh, But you also mentioned uh, other refugee populations who, although they would have liked to go back home, the world situation made it impossible. Uh, But is there not an international right of return for refugees as the Palestinians claimed?
3: So the short answer is no. Uh, And there's certainly no... Right for the Palestinians to settle inside the sovereign state of Israel in breach of Israeli sovereignty and against its will. Uh, When Palestinians speak of a right of return, to most people, it sounds logical and innocuous. Uh, Kind of, really, it makes so much sense. You know, you just go back. Who does not? You know, who doesn't get to go back? Or uh, how can you deny people their internationally sanctioned right of return? But the truth is exactly the opposite. Like you mentioned, throughout the 20th century, uh, we have a major global transition from empire to nation states. We begin the 20th century uh, with the world pretty much all divided between empires, and we end the 20th century when the world is divided between nation states. I have a colleague who likes to say that by the end of the 20th century, if you're not ice, Antarctica, and if you're not water, you're a nation state. Now, in the process uh, of moving to nation states, it's a bloody process. Two global wars, decolonization, civil wars, borders are established, lines are drawn, people flee, people are expelled, uh, and new states emerge. People do not go back. Why? Why does that become the international norm? Because it's very clear that if people, refugees, are allowed to go back, especially refugees who were especially at war the moment before, uh, the ones that the new state doesn't want because there had just been a war, uh, there would be new war. War would continue forever. So the global norm that is clearly established throughout the 20th century is that refugee populations do not go back, certainly not against the will of the newly established sovereign state. So the state of Israel can open its gates to Jewish refugees from around the world. And Poland can uh, let uh, Polish refugees enter, but it's not letting German refugees enter. So that is clearly the global norm, and Israel operates within that global norm. So there's no internationally sanctioned right of return for refugee populations into uh, sovereign states against their will. It just doesn't exist. The Palestinians often uh, quote uh, this United Nations General Assembly Resolution 194, saying that gives them the right of return. And all we have to tell people is go read the resolution. It's a resolution in the midst of the war, basically uh, designed to create a framework for peace. Uh, and in a pattern that will repeat itself uh, throughout the history of the UN, the Arabs reject the the resolution, because they don't want to make peace with Israel. This is in the midst of war. They're still hoping to win it. Uh, They refuse to recognize Israel. They refuse to chart any path to peace with Israel. But then, uh, a short while after, when they realize that there is one clause, uh, and again, this is a pattern that they do later, kind of, Uh, using parts of a resolution while ignoring the context and the fact that they uh, rejected it, they use one clause that speaks about the fact that those refugees who want to live in peace uh, uh, should be permitted to do so. But the whole phrasing is not one of right of return. It's one that clearly maintains the sovereignty of the state of Israel to decide what it's going to do. Uh, so, as Abba Ibn said, the extravagant reinterpretation of this resolution, ignoring the context, ignoring that Arab countries rejected it, and Arab uh, the Arab refugees, of course, rejected it, and then giving it this extravagant interpretation that it gives all refugees in perpetuity, into the generations, a right that overrides Israeli sovereignty to settle in Israel and by thereby transform it into an Arab-majority country, that is not in the resolution, and there is no such right, not for the Palestinians and not for other refugee populations.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real P.O.S.? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.:
1: And, and there are more things that are puzzling to me about the, uh, the concept and the acceptance of Palestinian refugees. As an, as an idea, as a label. Uh, one of them is, uh, it's true, Palestinians don't as yet have statehood, but they do have autonomy and control of most of the disputed territories. So if a Palestinian lives in a place governed by Palestinians under Palestinian law, with Palestinian courts and police, in what sense is such an individual a refugee?
2: Exactly. I think that this situation, where you still have millions, by the way, more than two million uh, Palestinians who are designated as refugees uh, in the West Bank and also in Gaza. By the way, in Gaza, it's an even more uh, clear situation. Uh, there's no uh, Israeli military in Gaza, there is no Israeli civil presence in Gaza. So, Gaza is one, the Gaza Strip is 100% today palestinian controlled uh, by hamas uh, there is no Jew, jewish person whatsoever in the gaza strip and uh, we still have uh, 1.4 million people uh, which is about 75 or 80% of the entire strip uh, gaza strip's population who are considered to be refugees now this is exactly when you ask Where are you refugees from? So for us, or for many people outside of this region, this is indeed puzzling. But for the Palestinians, it's clear where are they refugees from. They are refugees in their mind from inside the state of Israel. They are the descendants of those people who fled or were expelled in 1948 from Beersheba, Ashkelon, all these cities inside the state of Israel. And this is where they want to return to. So for them, it is very clear. You see it, for example, in the demonstrations uh, that we had in the last couple of years, which were called the March of Return. So each Friday, you had thousands of people coming to the border. And this is, by the way, the pre-1967, the 5th of June uh, border, which everybody considers now to be... Uh, or at least was supposed to be a frontier or a border of peace, right? This is where the Palestinians should have uh, built their own future, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This is what they supposedly wanted, to be free of Israeli occupation. They are free of Israeli occupation, and still what they want is to return. The march of return is when thousands of people came to the border, tried to cross it, and set out specifically. They were not even shy about their... Uh, you know, about the cause. They said, we want to regain the territory, which is beyond this border, meaning we want the state of Israel as well. So for them, for the Palestinians, this is a situation as well happening in the West Bank. You have the city of Ramallah or the city of Nablus and adjacent, you have the uh, Nablus uh, refugee camp. And as you mentioned, it is governed by Palestinians, uh, neither the Israeli police, neither the Israeli Uh, uh, army is controlling those areas, these are areas controlled by the Palestinian Authority, and still they consider them to be refugees. I think this is the best evidence that we have, um, that their wish and their desire is to someday uh, go back to their homes or to the homes of their grandparents. By the way, of course, the homes do not exist. Uh, And through this, make the state of Israel into another Arab uh, state. So for them, it is very clear, it is not puzzling at all, when you understand the entire Palestinian or Arab uh, point of view.
1: Looking at the, uh, the situation from the perspective of a country, uh, for example, like America, where much of the population are the descendant are either themselves immigrants, but many, many, many are the descendants of refugees uh, throughout the throughout the decades. None of those children, and certainly not the grandchildren, of the first generation refugee or immigrants, consider themselves refugees. It's inconceivable that they would. Uh, they recognized what their parents and grandparents experienced, went through, and they are gratefully settled, rooted citizens of the United States. That includes many Palestinians, including one who's a member of Congress right now. Is the idea of UNRWA and the Palestinian notion of return to first of all, do they count all these people settled in America, settled in Canada, settled in Sweden, settled ev- everywhere in the world besides the West Bank and Gaza? Are they all counted for UNRWA's uh, census as Palestinian refugees?
3: So, a bit about the numbers. UNRWA operates only in the Middle East. So, by UNRWA's count, uh, it registers five and a half million refugees in its territories, which are the West Bank, Gaza, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon. And to continue on what Adi said, the idea of Palestinian refugees is huge. But in practice, the issue is very small, because 2.2 million so-called refugees live in the West Bank and Gaza. So they're clearly not refugees, they're not going to go anywhere. Another 2.2 million are citizens of Jordan. They've been naturalized when Jordan annexed the West Bank, and nowhere in the world is a citizen of a functioning country uh, considered a refugee of another country to which they've never been. So they're not refugees in Jordan, they're citizens of Jordan. And in Syria and Lebanon, where another million uh, exist, most of them we know have left by now. So the actual number of people who could be counted as refugees by international standards, by those employed by the Refugee Convention and the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, the actual agency for refugees, is very small. Probably the 20,000, 30,000 originals who fled to Lebanon and Syria and did not become naturalized in Jordan or stayed within the West Bank and Gaza and their descendants. Those are the kinds of numbers that can be settled. This is what UNHCR knows to do. Now, the Palestinians themselves go beyond the official numbers of UNRWA, which are also wildly inflated, and they inflate them even further by counting everyone, like you mentioned, citizens of Sweden, of Germany, of Canada, of the U.S., as far as the Palestinians are concerned, uh, citizens of the United States, born in the United States, are still refugees from Palestine. Uh, and in that sense, I mean, it really gives you kind of the scope of the idea in their mind, uh, but also the fact that the reality is so far for that. They're actually... The vast majority of those that the Palestinians claim to be refugees are not refugees, not the citizens of Germany and Sweden and Canada and the US, not the citizens of Jordan, not the Palestinians living in the West Bank and Gaza. We actually have in practice very few Palestinian refugees, even though the idea that they are refugees is by far the biggest and the greatest in their mind.
1: Let's turn to uh, another group of Middle Eastern refugees during the same time period, late 40s, early 50s. uh, Some 850,000 Jews were expelled or fled from Arab and North African countries during those times. Why aren't they still refugees cared for by a U.N. agency of their own?
2: So just to give a little bit of a background, uh, indeed, there were a little bit even more, almost one million Jews living in in Arab countries, uh, both in what we call the Middle East, so the countries surrounding Israel, such as Egypt, Syria, Iraq, even Yemen, and also in uh, North Africa, countries such as Morocco, uh, Algeria, Tunisia, Libya. So we had something like one million Uh, Jews living there, as we all know, now, 2020, there are perhaps a few thousand Jews living in Morocco, a few thousand Jews living in Iran, and that's it. So 99% of this uh, uh, population, which predated Islam and Arab uh, conquest of this entire region, very old communities uh, in Babylonia and in Egypt are all gone. And that was a process which happened, let's say, in a one decade or two decades from the uh, end of the 40s until the end of the 60s. All these people disappeared. Uh, now, most of them uh, arrived in Israel. Um, we had huge, uh, massive uh, uh, immigration waves from Iraq, which in one year simply evaporated the entire community in 1950. Later on from Morocco, it was in the beginning of the 60s. Now, all these people, when they came to Israel, their circumstances were certainly uh, befitting the the notion of refugees. They were kicked out of their countries, either physically, simply kicked out, or their lives were being so miserable uh, when the population and the government turned on them simply for being Jews. They were identified as Zionists, even though most people uh, were not Zionists, certainly not in the sense of political activism. Uh, there were very, very harsh economic sanctions. People were fired from their jobs, uh, their assets were frozen, and there were also some very physical attacks. So uh, synagogues were bombed, the Jewish markets were bombed, etc., etc. Harassed. So when they came to Israel, they were certainly in a situation of uh, of being refugees. And the circumstances, by the way, in which they lived, what we call in Israel the marbarot, so those tents, those uh, huge um, um, uh, tent cities, uh, were very similar to what we imagine being in a refugee camp. People lived in poverty, uh, uh, without uh, uh, stable homes, without fixed homes. But slowly, slowly, in a very natural situation, most of the world, except for the Palestinians, they, first of all, of course, became Israeli citizens. And in that moment, stop being refugees, because, as not just mentioned, you cannot be a refugee and at the same time a citizen. And second, they built their houses, and sorry, they built their lives, built their lives anew, created new families, created new jobs. And of course, from the '50s, you don't have Jewish refugees in the State of Israel. This is exactly the phenomenon, the, the development, the process that did not happen. With the, uh, with, the, uh, with the Palestinians. By the way, many Jews uh, reached uh, France, Canada, the United States. Uh, they received uh, citizenship, so they were naturalized. Of course, at that moment, the refugee status stops. And uh, again, they, they tried to flourish. They tried to recreate their lives. Uh, the uniqueness of the Palestinian situation is that they didn't do it and that they were indulged. By the international community, no one in the international community, certainly not a special UN agency, was created to help or, you know, to sustain this uh, this notion that Jews will someday return to their houses in Iraq. By the way, the the property, uh, the the estimates of property the Jews left behind in places like Iraq, in 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 Egypt, you have to remember that these are communities of two millennia. So they have both uh, a personal uh, property, they have communal properties such as synagogues, cemeteries. The, the, the uh, estimates are uh, billions and billions of dollars, which were all um, confiscated and, and, uh, and belongs today to the, to the, to the countries that were, uh, uh, where the Jews were living. So uh, indeed, you can see a, a huge asymmetry, between the, the treatment of the world towards the Jews and the treatment of the world towards the Palestinians.
1: Your mentioning of the uh, Ma'abarot, the uh, tent, primitive tent cities that received <clears throat> the flood of uh, refugees into the new young country of Israel, reminds me of an observation once made to me by a UN employee who said, if you want to understand the difference between Palestinian refugees and real refugees, it is this. Refugees, real refugees, live in tents. They struggle to get clean water and food and medical care and the basics of life. Palestinian refugees have satellite dishes and internet connections in their houses. And that explained to her the difference in why one needs to be supported by the international community and the other really doesn't. Uh, but um, you, you accuse the Western countries of, of enabling or of maintaining the situation, uh, in part, both because they con- uh, contributed money to UNRWA until recently, including the United States, but they no longer do that, uh, but mostly by... Uh, what you call in your book, Westplaining, the diplomatic equivalent of mansplaining, uh, uh, of asserting that even though the Palestinians say they insist on return, they don't really mean it. It's just a bargaining chip. So explain to us what you meant when you wrote on page uh, 177 the following. Palestinian return is not a bargaining chip in the service of the greater goal of independence and statehood. It is actually the greater goal itself. If return were truly just a bargaining chip, it could have and would have been bargained long ago for a Palestinian state. Rather, it is a Palestinian state that is repeatedly bargained away in order to keep fighting for return." Say something so,
3: about that. Yes. Yes. So this is, this is exactly it. And this is, by the way, uh, where we started our conversation, where Adi and I uh, saw the Palestinians walk away from clear and distinct opportunities to have a state and wondered what was going on. Because certainly by people who were involved in the issues and negotiators, the reigning assumption throughout the 1990s that the issue of refugees is a marginal issue, that the idea of the right of return is a bargaining chip, uh, often presented as the only bargaining chip because Israel has real assets. Israel controls the territory. That's an actual asset. Uh, What do the Palestinians have? They have nothing. Uh, Their only asset is this right of return. And that's the asset that they will bargain away when they can have the real asset of a sovereign independent state on territory, on land. And that is a reasonable assumption. Uh, And that was certainly a reasonable assumption. I think we also in the book describe how after the fall of the Soviet Union, when the Palestinians lost the Soviet backing, they turned to the West for support without changing the goal, but they did change their wording. They started to speak more about self-determination and rights and justice, which to Western ears sounds very moderate, but Palestinians, as a dimension, justice means no Israel, rights means the right of return. So that was the assumption throughout the 1990s, but it was put to the test. Ehud Barak presented them with the opportunity to have A state, sovereign, in the West Bank and Gaza, no settlements, capital in East Jerusalem. This repeated itself with Ehud Olmert in 2008, and there were other opportunities. And the Palestinians walk away, and in the book, We also talk about what they said, and not only do they walk away, by the way, not only do Arafat and Abu Mazen walk away from repeated opportunities for independence and statehood and territory, uh, they, uh, they don't face any criticism. They do not go back to their people and face any criticism that says, what have you done? We could have just had a state. Are you insane? Go back and get us our state. You don't, there's not a single op-ed that says that. Uh, So you understand that not only did they they actually, they did something that reflects the ethos of their people. They didn't face criticism because they operated according to what their people wanted. And this is when we realized, like I said, that it was hiding in plain sight. It was not a bargaining chip because it was put to the test and they didn't bargain away This idea of return in exchange for the actual asset of statehood and territory and independence. So it's the reverse. Palestinians have never, not for a single minute, wanted a state in the West Bank and Gaza, or for that matter, in half of the territory in 1947, if having their own state would have meant that the other territory— would belong to the Jewish people. As long as this was the price, they have repeatedly opted to say no and to keep fighting. To keep fighting until this is, for them, no longer the price, until they have Palestine from the river to the sea and no longer have to divide it or share it with the Jewish people. So by now, if in the 1990s we could have believed that it's a bargaining chip, Once it was repeatedly put to the test and the Palestinians have clearly made a conscious choice to reject statehood in order to keep the idea of return and from the river to the sea, we need to come to terms with the reality that this is what they want. And we need to ultimately change that reality in our view. But this is the reality that we face right now and have always faced, actually.
1: Uh, Two years ago, in 2018, the Swiss foreign minister observed that although it may once have been useful, uh, UNRWA provides ammunition to continue the conflict. That's a quote. And he continued, by supporting UNRWA, we are keeping the conflict alive. Did anyone pay attention to him at the time?
2: Uh, (laughs) That's a very good question. So from time to time, you have, uh, I think, uh, mainly when new people come to the to their jobs and look around and start asking, you know, the um, classical questions of why are we supporting this uh, this agency? It, it's doing nothing good. Uh, it has no logic in it, and uh, we should stop doing it. So I think this was the case of the. Of the uh, of the Swiss uh, foreign minister and the problem is that uh, on the other hand you have so many establishments already involved in this so you have the foreign secretaries and the state departments and uh, uh, you know the security establishment so many establishments which are uh, embedded in this and it, it gives the impression that onra, uh, it's like the sun, you know. It it will uh, it will uh, uh, rise tomorrow in the e- in the east as well. So this was, by the way, also the case of of Donald Trump. I think he very uh, very intuitively felt that uh, it makes no sense seventy years after a war to sustain an agency which only adds uh, refugees to their lists every year. So of course, uh, uh, you know, you, you you get what you're paying for. You 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 pay for more refugees, then you get more refugees. So I think very intuitively Donald Trump understood it. It wasn't easy for the United States to stop funding UNRWA because, again, you had the State Department and the Pentagon and all these analysts and, you know, all these... uh, In 70 years, this uh, infrastructure of UNRWA has become part of the UN uh, establishment and uh, there's also um, connections with the Israeli establishment so it has become part of, of 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 the natural life of the area, and um, I do think that uh, um, with the right diplomatic efforts, uh, a very clear uh, uh, way can be found to stop financing UNRA, to close down this agency. I mean, the 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 foreign minister was uh, absolutely right in his assessment, and. Um, Uh, political decisions should follow this assessment. Uh, If the European Union or any other country really wishes uh, to um, uh, help uh, the Palestinian education system, because this is what UNRWA is. UNRWA is basically schools and clinics. Uh, It has nothing to do and, and should not have any political dimension or any connection to a refugee status or the status of where are you going to be a citizen. And if uh, countries in the EU, such as Sweden and other countries, want to help, uh, you know, they help uh, uh, countries in, in, in Africa or in Rwanda, etc., so they can help the Palestinian Authority to promote their um, education system. But uh, to continue this uh, this uh, charade, and even worse, because it, uh, it has detrimental effects on the possibilities of security and peace in this area, then uh, they should follow... The assessment of the of the foreign secretary
1: so that's a recommendation for uh, non-political humanitarian ways to help the palestinians but what are your recommendations for the u.s. and european countries going forward if they are interested in moving toward the end of the conflict what do you recommend that they do
3: So, first of all, the first step for us is really to get Europeans, Americans, to understand the terrible, detrimental role that UNRWA and the entire Western indulgence of the Palestinian refugee issue and the dream of return has created. Uh, I think for us in the book, one of the most shocking realizations was to realize the dramatic role that UNRWA played in really creating. A Palestinian collective identity that is entirely focused on revenge and return. Uh, again, unlike all other refugee populations in the world. So first of all, the West needs to move away from their notion that UNRWA is some, uh, you know, benign and, or even useful agency that provides social services to Palestinians. It's a political organization that keeps the war of 1948 over, that's what it does. Once you understand that, everything becomes simple and flows from that. What needs to happen is to dismantle the agency because every day that the agency exists and every day that it gets more than a billion dollars from the West is a day that the Palestinians are strengthened in their worldview, that the West supports them in this idea that they are still refugees, that there will one day be a return, and that they, the war of 1948 is still open. And by the way, when a DNI present those ideas, and we've spent 20 hours with diplomats and journalists in the West saying that, they often say, oh, uh, no, the fact that we give money doesn't mean that we support this Palestinian vision of from the river to the sea. But our argument is. It actually is. The Palestinians are correct in understanding it in this way. When the Americans decided to defund UNRWA, the response from Palestinians was not, oh no, how will we pay our teachers? That was not the response. That was the response of some Westerners, but not of Palestinians. What Palestinians said is the Americans are trying to take away our right of return. For the Palestinians, there is The one-to-one connection between Western funding of UNRWA and the existence of UNRWA and the notion that the West legitimizes the idea that they are refugees and they will one day take over Israel. So once you accept that, once you understand that, it's very clear. You need to dismantle UNRWA. Uh, You can move the funds. I mean, it's very clear who should be supplying the schools. Jordan to their citizens the Palestinian Authority to the Palestinians in the West Bank and even in Gaza, Syria, Lebanon, settled the refugees uh, based on the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees' uh, methods of operations. There is a very clear and simple path to ending the Palestinian refugee situation. Um, uh, dismantling UNRWA and most importantly, sending the Palestinians finally the same message that all other refugees in the world got throughout the 20th century, which was the simple message of move on. Yes, it's tragic. Yes, it's sad, but move on. And I think it's important to understand, we don't think it's a good thing that uh, the Palestinians have all these things. You know, some people say, why isn't there an UNRWA for Jewish refugee? No, there shouldn't be. Because look at what happened with South Korea, where the refugees were settled by Ankara, a temporary agency that closed down after achieving its goal in a few short years. The Palestinians could have been South Korea. Look at Germany. Look, I mean, if all people in the world would have been indulged like the Palestinians, the world would have been in constant war. So if we want to end the war, uh, I mean, if we want to have peace, we must end the war. It's a very banal idea. We must end this war. And once the Palestinians recognize that the war of 1948 is over and that the state of Israel is here to stay, at least in some borders, then we can finally move towards making peace and packing out the details of how exactly we're going to divide the land and where the border is going to pass. But those are the details that we can only negotiate once the war is over. And that's what we want the West to do. Stop fueling the war, because that's what you've been doing for 70 years.
1: Well, Enat and Adi, you've given us your time and a great deal to think about before you go, tell us what you're working on now.
2: So, uh, I'm pursuing my, um, PhD dissertation. I'm working on my PhD. Um, I'm writing on, uh, issues of conflict resolution. <laughs> it's not that far from, from our topic. I'm writing about uh, theoretical aspects of conflict resolution and how do relate how do they relate <clears throat> to the um, to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. I hope to finish it in the next year or so, um, and then we'll see. But for now, this is my main uh, my main work.
1: Well, good luck with that. Thank what you. about you, Inna?
3: So I continue. uh, I joke that these days I do three things. Uh, I think I talk and I write. So I continue to do that mostly in issues relating to Israel and Zionism. Together, we now have our book being translated into Arabic because we think there are very interesting changes in the Arab world that would lead to an openness to the messages in the book. Uh, and uh, that's definitely one of the most interesting things I think we're working on, how to ultimately, in order to have peace between Israel and the Arab world, and even the Islamic world more broadly, how do we uh, bring the message that the Jewish people are indigenous to the land, that we're not foreigners, we're not crusaders, we're not the French in Algeria, we truly belong here, and how we promote this message in the Arab world that peace is based on the Arab and ultimately Islamic recognition that we belong here.
1: Well, that's wonderful. I wish you great success uh, in achieving those goals. Thank you both for your important work and for being on the show today. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov. Bye-bye now. Take care.